traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to our talk show, The Economist Asks. And this week, we're asking, what makes a terrorist? These were children, young people and their families that those responsible chose to terrorise and kill. This was an evil act. At the end of a pop concert on Monday, the 22nd of May, 22 people, including children, were murdered by a young suicide bomber, Salman Abedi, in Manchester. Over 100 more were injured. This was Britain's deadliest attack since the bombings in London in 2005 that claimed over 50 lives and the second in just two months after a man drove a car into pedestrians on Westminster Bridge in March. The scale of the attack resembles the massacre at Paris's Bataclan Music Centre in 2015 and the Berlin attacks last year. But what makes a terrorist? And what policy interventions can prevent other people from following the same violent path? With me in our London studio is Gilles Capel, Professor of Political Science at Sciences Po in Paris and an expert in Islamism. His book Jihad, written before the September 11th attacks, and his books on Paris's suburbs are considered milestones in the study of radical Islam. Last year, Gilles was the target of terrorism himself, after he was put on a death list by French jihadi Le Rossi Abala, who murdered a policeman and his wife. Gilles' latest book is Terror in France, The Rise of Jihad in the West. Gilles, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And also joining me is Anton LaGuardia, our deputy foreign editor, who's written several briefings and special reports on terrorism. Hello, Anton. Hi. So, Gilles, you identify three waves of terrorism. And you classify the one we're in now as the third wave. When did it begin and why is it different to anything that went before? In January 2005, when a Syrian engineer trained in France by the nom de guerre of Abu Musab al-Suri posted this longish uh, essay called The Global Islamic Resistance Call, where he said that you know he also learned lessons from the failures of the two previous phases, and it was the third phase of those dialectics of jihadism, said neither far away, too far away, America is too far away, neither nearby, mm -hmm. in the middle. Europe is the soft underbelly of the West, and this is what we should target. Also, 9-11 was a failure because it was top-down. It had an unbelievable magnitude, but did not reach out to the masses, did not reach out to the grassroots. So we have to substitute this top-down thing, this Leninist model, if you want, with a bottom-up model, a network-based model. No one took it seriously. And I remember being at the Foreign Office in those days, in 2007, I think, and the guy with a Scottish accent told me, this does not work because there is no such thing as network-based or reticular jihad. But they just had missed the cultural revolution of jihadism, which is something which happened in America in Valentine's Day 2005. YouTube got its license. And then, you know, the two merged, the digital revolution and the new content merged, and that led to this sort of jihad that went under the radar of the intelligence community, went through the prison incubators, 
petered out in France with 2012, the Mera attack, the 239 dead we had, and now which is spreading all over Europe with Germany and now Britain and Manchester. Anton, do you find the idea of dividing this phenomenon into waves to be compelling, given what you've seen reporting it on the ground as well as analysing it? I think it's a compelling way of thinking about the problem. Of course, the boundaries of when one phase ends and the other one begins are fuzzy because we've had lone wolf attacks for some years, even before the current wave. Moreover, Al-Qaeda as a sort of organized top-down force remains something of a threat. So there are fuzzy borders to this classification, but I think it's an important thinking tool. There is overlap, no doubt. But I think, you know, it's sort of an ideal type of view more than a sort of category. It ends on these days. But yeah, there is overlapping that someone gets the momentum on one moment and lose it on the other moment. What I want to ask you both is where Manchester fits into this. Uh, Just, Anton, back to you. Do you think this fits within the model? It's very different, for instance, from Bataclan in the manner of the attack. I think we need to know more about who was behind the attack and especially who built the bomb and what the bomb was made of. If it's a high explosive, it suggests a smuggling network. If it's a well-designed bomb, it suggests that there's an experienced bomb maker somewhere behind it rather than someone who's just built it off the internet. So we need to know more detail. It is certainly true that in France, we've seen a lot more guns used, which we haven't seen in Britain. As in Bataclan. As in Bataclan. Gilles, is that distinction interesting or important to you, both as Anton suggests that the bomb is the clue, the kind of of bomb, or indeed that it is just a a different form of attack. What do you read into that? Well, the the bomb issue, of course, is important, but there's another uh, dimension, I believe. The Bataclan, the 13th of uh, November 2015, took place at the height of the sort of ISIS territory power because, you know, you could have so-called foreign fighters from Europe who went to uh, the so-called caliphate territory, came back through Malenbeek, crossed the European borders, and there were uh, many people at Bataclan. Some were at Bataclan, others guns, people at sidewalk cafes. And then there was an explosive vest issues at the front, uh, Stadium of France, which fortunately uh, did not function because they just forgot to buy the tickets to get to the stadium, something Ben Laden would never have, uh, have done. Since the fall of 2016, the situation on the ground has changed tremendously because there's military pressure on the caliphate and the borders with Turkey are sealed to a large extent. So no one gets in, no one gets out. Therefore, it is quasi-impossible to have a group of people who are rather well-trained to come back. So what we saw was mainly individual attacks, people who are not lone wolves, but who are suffused with this ISIS or post-ISIS ideology. And then it is left to them in this sort of bottom-up phenomenon to a large extent, to identify the targets, if possible, in their neighbourhood. Now, this is where I want to ask you about motivation. What do you think we really know about attackers? We'll know more about what's actually happened in Manchester in detail, no doubt, in the coming weeks. But using what you know about the French attacks, why do young people, mostly young men, become this kind of terrorist? What is the big driver? One thing which I believe was extremely important is the prison incubator experience. Because, you know, this is where you have the social dimension, i.e. people who are disenfranchised usually, who went through petty crime and and what have you. In prison, they often meet someone who does proselytizing. And uh, this happened with Charlie Hebdo and the hyper-kosher attackers who were sort of brainwashed in jail by a chief al-Qaeda activist. 
And prison is the place which is a substitute for the father figure. There is no father that is able to transmit or transfer the law to the kid. And then in the prison system and elsewhere in the banlieues or in the inner cities here, you have this sort of peer group culture which is a substitute for the absentee father. And this peer group culture produces another law which is far more stringent than the, the father's law or the state's law, which is Sharia, and which is perceived by a number of those kids as a sort of bulwark against the anomie they feel in uh, modern, postmodern society. So, Anomie yeah, or stigmatization? Both, probably, but anomie is more important in the way they live because they do not understand that there are rules or they sort of shun those rules. They consider that uh, the rules and the laws and the bylaws of modern societies are not to be taken into consideration because they are man-made laws, they are not God-sanctioned laws, and therefore they turn to this sort of Salafi ideal which gives them a sort of protection. And do you like the idea of stigmatization? There's a bit of a divide in the debate about this. There is some stigmatization, but we should not overplay that because it is used also by a number of people who sort of create uh, jihadism as a reaction to victimization and stigmatization. And I think this is not the main driver. Anton, do you think Gilles understates the role of stigmatization? I think the search for an archetype is appealing But I think there are many different people who come to jihadism by different routes. Prisons is very important, uh, not least because there's also contact with the criminal underworld in prison. These kids come out and they have, you know, contacts. They may know where to find weapons. They may know where to find uh, people willing to help them. But, you know, there are all sorts of people coming into jihadism for ideological and for social and for personal reasons. Sometimes it's suicide. You know, someone wants to commit suicide by jihad. Certainly cases in the Middle East where people are lovelorn, who I've met, you know, go to Iraq or Afghanistan because they hope to be blown up and kill themselves. I was just going to ask for a flick of your reporter's notebook here. How much of what you've heard from Jill you know, laying out big picture and, and theories have you actually seen reflected in the nitty-gritty of reporting on this? Obviously, the fight in the Middle East is different. These are civil wars that are going on, using the ideology and the techniques of jihad and certainly using industrial-scale suicide attacks, which have never been seen before. So, in a sense, what's happening in Europe is a reflection and a backwash of that process that's going on in the Middle East. But one of the things I'd like to ask, Jill, if I may, is the relative role played by Britain and France. So in the second wave of the attacks that you mentioned, Britain was seen as the center of the jihadist ideology. Then in the third wave, if you want, uh, France has seemed to be much more prominent in this. Now, that may just be a coincidence, who's available when to carry out attacks. But do you think there's something about France at the moment that's made it particularly vulnerable? And do you think that what we've seen in Manchester is a shockwave coming out of what's happening in France? Or should we see them as completely separate? Well, if we go uh, in retrospect, I think that, you know, what was very important was to understand that third wave Islamic jihadism aims at retaliation. I mean, their aim is to sort of uh, to break, to tear the social fabric. And uh, if you read Abu Musab al-Suri, it's very clear that he thinks that, you know, all those attacks are going to lead the global population to uh, react, to victimize or to stigmatize Muslims. And therefore, uh, they will go desecrate mosques, uh, the votes for the extreme right will rise. And then the jihadists will be able to tell their uh, co-religionists, see, they don't want us, and there is no way for integration. You have to join ranks under our banner. 
And one of the main issues is to hijack the elections and to take them hostage. And everybody in France thought, for all the pundits had prophesied that because of jihadi attacks in France, Marine Le Pen would have a landslide victory, at least in the first round, and in the runoff she would fare very well which she didn't do, and Macron trounced her. Why was that? Among other things, because since the 26th of July last year, 2016, no attack succeeded in France. Why was that? Uh, among other things, because French intelligence agencies got better and better. Anton reminded us that the second wave was Britain-centered. Everybody remembers the July 2005 attacks in, in London. Uh, at the time, even though France has the biggest uh, Muslim population in Europe, not that all Muslims, of course, are, are into jihad. On the contrary, most uh, hate the jihadists. But nevertheless, the pond is the biggest by jihadist standards. Uh, we had 16 years without an attack on French soil between 1995 and 2012. Now, why is it that it was so big? I believe it's because, you know, this third wave of jihadism coincided with a third stage of French Islam where Salafism became more and more prominent. And there was this blend between French homegrown Salafism and foreign jihadism that merged. But I do want to challenge you a, a bit on uh, something that a fellow scholar, Olivier Roy, has said. He's used the phrase the Islamization of radicalism, in short, a way of saying religion doesn't play as big a role in the lives of young terrorists or potential terrorists as widely assumed. Now, you took issue with that. Why? Getting back to what Anton just said, and when he mentioned those guys who want to commit suicide, massive suicide, Oli Roy believes that ideology is not important at all. That, you know, we had the Red Brigades and the Rot Armee Fraction 20 years ago. Now we have the Green Brigades. Tomorrow we're going to have the Yellow Brigades or the Blue Brigades. It does not matter. The toolbox is available, so you take what is available. Now, go back to what Anton just told us. There is no suicide issue in, in the Red Brigades. They were not interested in going to any kind of paradise. Now, if you look at the Islamist and the jihadist ideology, this issue of going to paradise, of being a martyr, of realizing yourself, I say so, in this way, is extremely important. And you do not, if you shun the ideology, you don't understand anything. Oli Roy, for instance, says that it is totally useless to know Arabic if you study what happens in the French values. Well, if you do not understand what's the ideological background for that, you miss a substantial dimension. Social issue is important. The family and personal issue is important. But the ideological issue is also important. If you don't encompass the three, you miss the whole thing. But one thing that puzzles me, Anton, is the, the relationship of, sort of modern lifestyles with the Islamist creed or, or, or way of coming to live and perhaps be a danger to the society around you. And I think Gilles has pointed out that some people who were radicalised, one of the suicide bombers at the start of France, indeed, was, was smoking dope and drinking cocktails just months before the attack. Now, doesn't that support the view that these men are not really religious zealots. They are driven by something else, and we're finding it difficult to pin down. I think that what jihadism offers is simplicity for a person who wants to change. And therefore, you see often radicalization happening very quickly. You don't need to be deeply literate, steeped in the sources, to know all the verses of the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet in order to imbibe this ideology. That said, ideology does matter. You know, not every Nazi Kampfguard had read Mein Kampf, but nevertheless, they share the belief. So I think the ideological matrix that is created by these jihadist thinkers does matter. And where does this leave the debate about public response? 
not so much the security state shield, but things like uh, the uh, covering up of, of women and, and full face or half face veils. There is a view that France's near obsession with what some Muslim women are wearing is a distraction. It distracts from, from the, the much more important task of getting to grips with this radicalization. And yet we interviewed Bent and Henri Lévy recently on this show who said, no, this is actually a symptom. Take it seriously. It's a symptom of something that's gone badly wrong in political Islam. Where are you on it? One of the dividing lines is uh, whether, as Anton just said, ideology matters. And if you believe that Salafism is a phenomenon which is uh, closely linked with jihadism, they have they share the same ideological tenets. In, in Arabic, it's al-wala wal-bara'a, which means total allegiance to the scholars of Salafism who tell you that all non-Salafists are either apostates, bad Muslims, that their blood is licit, or that the rest of the population is made out of kuffar, of infidels, then you see that there is a continuity between what is the cultural break and the break that goes to violence. Now, Salafists usually are not violent. I mean, they are linked with the Saudi Arabian establishment, people who sell you oil, so they're not going to kill their customers, right? But then this is the, the ideological pedestal, if I may say so, on which the statue of, of jihadism can, can, so can be built. So how should the state respond? Should the state be active well, in that or well, I believe, let me you know, with it? When you look at what Emmanuel Macron is trying to do now, uh, our new president, I mean, the, he's pl- pledging for a sort of um, terrorism task force at the Elysee Palace, which will deal not only with terrorism as a security issue, but as a means to look at the ailments of Western societies. And from security issues, you have to go to justice to understand what happens in the prison system, which opens an avenue for understanding the society, and then which leads to the reform of education and of the labor market. So therefore, I think it's it's a big thing. And instead of looking at terrorism as something which is an accident in our history, I think we have to look at our present history through the prism of terrorism because it will help us decipher what is happening in our postmodern societies. We should return finally to Manchester and to what we might learn from the dreadful events there. Anton, what would you like to see changed in the way that we approach this subject, both in Britain and in France? That's a huge question. And I think you have to think about the Middle East, first of all, where these terrible civil wars are taking place and therefore... The outside world needs to do more to try and solve the conflicts there. And that means not just relying on strongmen, as Donald Trump has tried to do in his discussion with leaders in Saudi Arabia. Oppression of Muslims in Muslim countries is part of the anger that feeds this movement. The second thing is that, in a way, this is a war within the Muslim world. Above, before it being a war of you know Muslims against the crusading West, it's actually a war within the Muslim world for the meaning of the scriptures and the meaning of who has the right of succession or who has the right to rule. Therefore, the West, if you want to call it that, needs... Muslims on its side, which I think means defining the enemy narrowly rather than defining it too broadly to include too many Muslim groups whose views we as liberals may disagree with, but who are not violent. So where I would draw the line is to say, you know, work with anybody who is willing to turn against the violent sort. Gilles, is that a recipe that would appeal to you? Well, in ideal terms, certainly. But then when you start to work with someone, there is a price to pay. And if you want to deal with the Muslim brothers, for instance, what are they going to ask for in compensation? Are they going to ask to be the leaders of the community, the ones who deliver 
their co-religionists? Are they going to be the sole brokers? And this is the big issue. And therefore, we're talking a lot about civil liberties. What about the civil liberties of Muslim women in, in Europe now who are pressured so that they are compelled to wear a veil? In the banlieues in France, it's extremely difficult now. If you look Muslim to smoke in the street, Ramadan is going to start t tomorrow. If you look Muslim and if you smoke in the street, it's going to be very difficult. If you want to live with a non-Muslim man and if you're a, a Muslim woman, you have to move from this area. So this is a very, very stringent balance that we have to think about. And it's not only an issue of ideals, which are okay, but it's also an issue of daily life. Fascinating and disturbing. Thank you both very much, Gilles Capel and Anton Laguardia. That was The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, do get in touch with us either via email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.